Hello and welcome to Finding Truth Matters with Dr Andrew Corbett. It's great to have you join us for the program. For the past few weeks, Dr Corbett has been exploring the Apostle Paul's letter to the Colossians, which was written to address the dodgy theology and false teaching that had crept into the Colossian church. The Colossians were being distracted from the truth of who Jesus was, and Paul, from his prison cell, wrote to restore them to right thinking. There's much we can learn from the experience of the Colossians and from Paul's instruction to them. So let's join Dr Corbett now for the conclusion to his study of Colossians. You remember that this church was, was probably started by a man by the name of Epaphras. And Epaphras, a young pastor, was overseeing this church, the Laodicean church, which was nearby, just the next town, was, was overseeing another church at a place called Heriopolis. And uh, he was having some problems. A young pastor with problems that into the church, particularly at Colossae, had come some people who were bringing some false teaching. And, and these false teachers were, were, were saying, this, this is how you're saved. And you're saved, one of the groups said, by putting your faith in Christ and keeping the laws of Moses. They were called the Judaizers. The other group was saying that the way you were saved... Is, is by attaining, obtaining this special knowledge. And it was, it, was quite, it, was, it was quite an insidious teaching these people were promoting. I'll tell you why. Because what they were doing was, these, these people were called Gnostics. And they were saying, you, you don't need to listen to the Apostle Paul and all that head knowledge that he wants to give you. Spirituality is not about knowledge. It's not about what you know in your head. It's about what you know in your heart. And these Gnostics were promoting this, this idea that you don't need truth, you don't need any of this kind of stuff, you just need to get this, this kind of inner light, this revelation, this, this gnosis is the Greek word, this, this, this knowledge. And so we're going to read in Colossians that when Paul addresses these two errors that were happening in the church, he's going to stress that Salvation is not a matter of what you do. It's not, as someone put it, salvation is not percentage theology. And percentage theology means that even if you think you have to do 1% of what it takes to be saved, you are robbing God of the full 100%. Because Paul is going to make it very clear that salvation is a 100% gift from God and that it's nothing of ourselves. So he's going to say in Colossians chapter 2, it's not a matter of what day you observe as holy. It's not a matter of don't touch this food, don't drink this drink, don't keep the, or keep this festival or don't keep this festival. The Apostle is going to make the point that none of those things save. It's just Jesus. And there's a theme that runs through Colossians, and it's, it's this, that 
We must be in Christ. And we see it in Colossians chapter 3 where Paul calls Christ your life. We must be in Christ. And as any good story, any good novel, any good book knows, there's a certain way to get a message across. And, and if, you've, if you've read a good novel, you'll notice that they all basically stick to the same pattern. And it's this. Set up the problem, explore the problem, give the solution, then give the implications to the solution, and then wrap it up. In a novel, it goes like this. Set the plot up, bring the plot to a climax, and then the last chapter or two mop up. And we're going to see that in this epistle as well. Chapter 3 is really the climax because it's the practical application of what we've just read in this epistle. You, you, would, you would have to be not only stupid but a special kind of stupid to miss the practical implications of what chapter 3 say. Now, I know there's no one here like that, so I haven't offended anybody. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> Praise the Lord. So... <laughs> But in chapter 3, we, we read some extremely, extremely practical stuff where Paul is just spelling it out. If you belong to Christ, this is how you'll think. Remember what the Gnostics were saying? It's not a matter of what you think. There's too much knowledge. We don't need more knowledge. We just need that inner light. It's a special mystery revelation that you get. And when you get it, the Gnostics were saying... It leads to, here's the word, asceticism. Asceticism is the idea that you deprive or deny yourself in the pursuit of being more religious, more spiritual, more godly, more holy. It might mean that you fast. It might mean that you uh, deprive yourself of certain things. That's asceticism, and I've discussed, as we've looked at this series, some of the things they did in the Middle Ages in the name of asceticism, the belief that if they did it, they were more pleasing to God. There are people that went and lived in caves for the rest of their lives, had no contact with people because they took the words of Jesus, do not be a part of this world, to that kind of illogical extreme. One person went and sat on a pole, for about 40 years in the idea that if he could just lift himself up and be away from the world, he'd be more, somehow more holy. That's asceticism. And it's, the Apostle Paul says, God is not impressed. That's not what does it. But when we come to chapter 3, we see the Apostle is saying, but if you are in Christ and Christ is in you, you will live differently. This is why the Apostle John could write in his epistle, the commands of God are not burdensome to us. Why? The old King James, I think, says irksome. The commands of God are not irksome to us. Why? Because some people think that God helps them to become a Christian. And I'll, I'll come back to that statement in a moment. And when you think like that, you think you become a Christian and you have to act like a Christian and then you've got to keep the commands of God. And the commands of God largely to you sound like don't do this, don't do that, don't do this. And it sounds like God is taking everything that's fun in your life and saying don't you dare. 
That's not Christianity. That's religion. That's not Christianity. What's Christianity? Christianity is not God helping you to become a Christian. Christianity is God making you a Christian. The first one is you doing something to become something, so you think. In the second scenario, God makes you a child of God. It's not a slow, gradual process where you're becoming more of a child. No, God does it. He puts his seed in you and you become a child of God. You become a Christian. In that light, your affections change. There was a book written in about 1770, roughly, by a man by the name of Jonathan Edwards. and It's, about, it's commonly called affections. And he talks about addressing a cold church, a church that, that, that saw duty to God as the preeminent exercise of spirituality, a church that said, if you're going to please God, you've got to do, and just lists of rules to keep. And, and Jonathan Edwards wrote this book, Affections, where he said, really, our response to God when we become a Christian is one where we delight in God. And we want to please him. And we want to do his will. And we love to do it. And it's an affection that we have for God. And where did that affection come from? God puts it in our heart. He fills us, Paul says in Romans 5, with his love. He shows us his love and he fills us with his love. And so now there's a love for God. And sometimes the reality is we distance ourselves from the love of God. And this is why it was... John Calvin, book three of the Christian Institutes, about section 20, where he said this, prayer does not bring God closer to me. Prayer brings me closer to God. Bumper sticker, you may have seen it. If God seems far away, guess who moved? So when we talk about having our affections stirred, We're going to see the Apostle Paul as he wraps up. He's going to talk about, let this come from your heart. In chapter 3 he says, let it it get into your mind. He's addressing the Gnostics who say it's not about mind, it's not about knowledge, it's not about teaching. And he's really thumped that in this epistle. And he goes, yes it is. What you think really matters. Let your mind be set on things above, not on things of earth. Let your mind be filled with Christ. Christianity is about mind. God is interested in what you put into your mind. And now we come down through chapter 3. We, now, we, we looked at that section that, that's phenomenally practical in the last section of chapter 3 from verse, verses 18 down to Colossians chapter 4 verse 1 where the, the implications of saying Christ lives in me is that you become a better husband. You become a better wife. You become a better father, a better mother, a better child. You become a better employee because you're a Christian. There's a, there's a, a, a teaching in, in classical Christianity that, that says we, we treat all people as if God loves them and that might sound like well duh yeah but what happens if they don't treat you like that and the teaching goes like this 
that even if they insult us, even if they abuse us, even if they ridicule us, even if they despise us, even if they are our employer and they are persecuting us because of our faith in Christ, we should still honour them because God loves them. And that's really the sentiment that we've got here because that clearly would have been the case for many of these Colossians. Christians, an emerging, seemingly emerging religion, and these Christians now working for pagan employers in those days. Um, it wasn't called employment, it was called slavery. And the, the term is not employer, employee, the, the terms are master, slave. And that doesn't necessarily mean they were manacled every night, it means they could go home. Often, Biblical slavery was often where someone got themselves so far into debt they, could, they couldn't repay their debt. They would sell themselves into slavery to pay their debt and they, then they would be an employee of someone for the rest of their lives at no pay because they had, had that debt repaid. And maybe this is the, the scenario that we've got in Colossians. And so what an amazing thing that Paul the Apostle says, so if you have a master who's treating you harshly, Treat him, serve him as if he was Jesus. Whoa. <laughs> wow. Some of us should be reading it going, you have got to be kidding. But you see, the thing is, when you read that, when you're trying to be a Christian, when you think God is helping you to become a Christian, yeah, I could see how that would seem like, no way. But if God has made you a Christian, if he has put his seed in you, if your heart is changed by God, God puts new affections in you, you see people who mistreat you, and it's not anger and vengeance toward them, it's pity and compassion toward them. And where did that come from? God's done it in your life. God's done it in your life. And each of those relationships, the wives and husbands, parents, children, employees, employers, is where Paul sees the implications of what it means to be a Christian. Very, very practical. Very practical. So now we come to this section that we might call mopping up. We're starting in verse 2. It says this, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Now, I'm going to divide these closing words down to verse 18 into three sections and the first section is prayer the next section is preaching and the, the final section is partnership and sometimes when we read these closing words in epistles we read these names and it's like yeah well that's irrelevant to me well yeah maybe but let's have a look perhaps at this a little bit slower as we look at some of these names that Paul's referring to and ask ourselves, what's the story behind this name? And as we do that, I hope to give you this principle, and it's, and it's this. If you read Scripture with the idea that all you have to do is read it and don't think about it, read it and don't pray about it, read it and, and you've, you've done tick, I've read my Bible today, all you're really doing is raking the surface it's kind of like raking the leaves off, off your, your garden. And, and, and you can do that, it's fine. If all you want to do is just get the leaves off your garden, raking is fine. 
And if all you want to do is rake this text, just rake it. Yeah, you, you know, we'll, we'll clear a few leaves away and you can see some nice green grass and that's cool. But sometimes we've got to do more than rake. We've got to put the rake away and go and get the shovel. And when you dig, it's amazing what you can find when you dig ground. Sometimes you find gold and treasure. In fact, you're rarely going to find treasure if you use a rake. So I'm going to help you do a little bit of digging in a moment as we look at the conclusion to this epistle. So let's come, let's come to the first section. We've got Paul talking about prayer. And there's three things Paul is saying to do when it comes to prayer. It's interesting that uh, so many books have been written about how to pray. How to pray. When John Calvin wrote uh, in the Institutes of Christian Religion, section 20 on the Christian life, and he had a chapter on prayer, he said the best thing to do is just pray. And he could have just wrapped it all up there. But what he did was he, he, went, he goes on and he talks about this is what you can pray. And he, he wrote down, and his students, as, as he was lecturing this, wrote down some of his prayers and they're they profound, just profound. But it's, a, it's an interesting thought. If you want to learn to pray, the best thing you can do is pray. <laughs> pray. Now look at the three things the apostle is saying prayer should involve. Firstly, it should be steadfast. It should be steadfast. Now one of the problems that many of us have got as uh, either Pentecostals or former Pentecostals, wherever you are on you know, your journey in, in that understanding, is that for, for some, uh, Pentecostal prayer was often pray once, believe in faith, and that's it. If you ever raise it again, it shows you don't have faith. I don't even heard teaching like that. But that doesn't fit with this picture of steadfast praying. I mean, how do you pray steadfastly if you're never going to mention it again? Someone help me here. I mean, it's like, it doesn't make sense. To steadfastly pray means that you will be praying the same thing over and over again. Don't we see that in Gethsemane? Don't we see Jesus praying the same thing over and over again? Anyone dare to accuse Jesus of not having faith? Jesus actually taught that when it comes to prayer, he taught a parable about the importune, importunity of, of uh, prayer. He told the story of the, the lady who was in, uh, importunate, which means she didn't give up. Give me justice. Give me justice. You know, she's, she's, she goes to the judge's house and she's there at midnight yelling out, give me justice. And the judge looks down and says, look, come back in the morning. No, give it to me now. And the judge goes, get, get, no way. And she, give it to me. I'm not going until I get it. And so she's there, you know, who knows for how long, praying. And this is what Jesus taught. Sometimes you've got to keep asking. Now, this is an intriguing thing because you would think that we are dealing with a God who could answer like that. And again, I was, I was listening to some stuff on Calvin yesterday and, and Calvin says the reason God doesn't answer prayer straight away is not because there's anything wrong with him, but it's to teach us dependency. The reason God doesn't answer prayer straight away is to teach us dependency to teach us 
that we are not God and he is and we need him and we can continue to appeal to him. And as we do that, we are becoming more aware of our dependency upon him. We are becoming more honouring of the one we are dependent upon. Steadfast in prayer. Paul the Apostle says, the first thing, continue steadfastly in prayer. Continue steadfastly in prayer. In the other epistles, for example, in Philippians, he says, pray without ceasing. Now, there is a type of attitude of prayer, and I would encourage you to have it. And if I was to ask you, rate your prayer life, I'm not sure that it's a life because I think Christianity is a prayer life. But if we were to say, rate your prayer life, zero to 10, 10 being perfect, where are you at? How many of us would, would notch up into an integer? That is, how many of us would be one and above? I'm not sure that many of us could dare say, yeah, my prayer life is one out of 10. Well, if, if, if you're one out of 10, I'm going to head you up as our intercessory prayer team leader because you are awesome. In other words, we can all feel like we're not praying like we should. And Christianity, if it's anything, is a life of prayer. It begins with a prayer, God save me. It is maintained by prayer, God, I need to know you. It, it, it involves different types of praying, where we are petitioning God, where we are pleading God, where we are supplicating, where we are intercessing. These are all words used in the New Testament. Christianity is prayer. Don't say to me, now having said what I've said about zero to ten, where are you at, how many of us would get to one, don't say to me, oh, I don't pray. Because if you say that, I'm going to think you've just told me you don't like being a Christian. So please don't say it to me. Because I, I backslide so quickly with a slap across people's faces. It's, just, it's embarrassing. Please say, I want God to teach me how to pray. I don't feel like I have entered into that, that, that realm of prayer. That is my potential. I'll go, oh yeah, I'm with you, man. <laughs> I'm with you. I want, to, I want to pray steadfastly. I want a spirit of prayer. I want to be able to pray. I want to be able to pray anytime, anywhere, steadfast in prayer. What's the next thing Paul says prayer should be? He uses this word watchful. Watchful. Now, as I was pondering this, I thought, well, Jesus said watch and pray. And the, the idea of watching kind of conjures up the idea of looking seeing and if that's the case if we're looking somewhere if we're seeing something when we pray what are we looking at and what are we seeing and you know initially you know my thought process went like this well we're looking to jesus and i thought but that that doesn't fit what the word in the bible watch generally means a watch was a sentry someone who was on the on the fence, you know, they were, they were on, the, on the, 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 the wall of a fortified city and they were there watching. What were they doing? They're on the lookout for the enemy. They're on the lookout for an attack. Their watching was protecting. Their watching was guarding. Paul says, when you pray, continue to pray and watch. Watch what? Watch how the enemy might get in and begin to attack you. And what's Paul's remedy for that? Steadfast prayer. Keep watching. Keep steadfast praying. What does it look like? Well, it could look like normal Christianity often will look like this. You, you wake up some days, you, you, you've, you know, 
You go out to the driveway and there's a flat tyre. Oh, great. You change it and you've, you've just bought these really slick mag wheels and now you've got this dodgy little four-inch wide sort of thing that's you know, an inch too short and you're off to work. And, and, you know, and your day just starts off wrong and as you pull out the driveway, you're, you run over your next-door neighbour's cat and, well, OK, I, no, I said it was going, going to get worse, didn't I? Um, anyway, so your day, your day just... And, and who feels like praying? Who, you know, and then you, then you get to work and it's, and it's like, oh, no, I didn't read my Bible before I left to work. And I made a covenant with God that I was going to read my Bible every day before I started my day. I was going to, and I haven't done it. Ah, I better not talk to God because if I do, he'll start to tell me what a rotten sinner I am. And so what happens, we begin to draw back and we begin to get cold and we begin to, you know, we go to church, but we sit in the back row. No one's in the back row today in the middle section. So there's obviously no back row people here today. So we begin to feel, we begin to put distance between us and God and it becomes hard to pray. It becomes hard to, we feel such a hypocrite if we say, oh God, I, I, I've got this bill and I need you to pay it. And God says, yeah, well, where have you been all week? What are we going to say? I've been busy? Like, we're going to say that to God? Like he's, what, sitting around there with nothing to do? It's like... <laughs> and we have this concept... Of a, of, of a really works distorted Christianity. And Christianity is such that those days will happen. There will be days when we don't pray, when we don't read our Bible like we should have. And it's at those times when it is hard to pray and it's at those times when we should pray hardest. It's at those times when we should come to God and here's another Pentecostal teaching, not necessarily Pentecostal, some the, the, there was a mob called the Anabaptists of the uh, 16th century who taught this. Once you're saved, you're made perfect. Sin has been completely removed from you. Well, man, that is not true in my experience. Now, the, the reality is my life is a life punctuated by coming to God and asking him for forgiveness and receiving it. We are a forgiven people, but we are a people who are being forgiven. And, and if you don't get that, you're going to live under this condemnation. You're going, to, you're going to drive yourself to such distance and coldness with God that you're afraid to come back to him because you think you've gone too far. And that's not what grace is all about. Grace is God saying, I want to forgive you. And if God is saying he wants to forgive us, it seems to me that we should take up the offer. What's the third thing Paul says we should do? We should be, can you see it in verse 2? Thankful. Our prayers should be steadfast. Our prayers should be watchful. We need to be praying watchful prayers. Watchful prayers for me sound like, oh God, guard my heart. Oh God, keep me from evil. Jesus taught it in what we call the Lord's Prayer, didn't he? Uh, you know, um, lead me not into temptation, that's a watchful prayer. Deliver me from the evil one, that's a watchful prayer. God, don't let my heart stray. Don't let my heart grow cold. Oh God, I feel, I feel I'm beginning to get cold. Oh God, relight the fire in my heart. Oh God, there are things in life that have taken up a higher priority in my life than you and your word and your presence. Oh God, I'm sorry, please forgive me. Bring me back in. Help me to be close to you. That's watchful praying. And with thanksgiving. I think thanksgiving 
is the remedy to depression. If you're thankful for what you've got, it's very difficult to be sad about what you haven't got. Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. It's a profound thought. Um, Jeff mentioned over communion this morning that when Jesus took bread, he gave thanks. It's not the first time he took bread and gave thanks, is it? Remember when the feeding of the 5,000 happened? I mean, what would you do if God said, I want you to take these two loaves and these five fishes and I want you to feed 15,000 people? Wouldn't you be having like an on-your-knees, three-hour intercessory prayer meeting waiting for the anointing to fall? What did Jesus do? Took the bread, gave thanks, and broke it. He gave thanks. Jesus was a very thankful person, and the fact that Jeff pointed out this morning that he gave thanks at the lowest moment in his life. What a lesson for us. How much have we got to be thankful for? Sometimes when my girls are feeling particularly um, uh, miserable, um, and what have you got to be thankful for? Give me three things. And we'll ask our girls three things. Three things you can be thankful for. And it changes your outlook. In prayer, we can often you know, tell people, well, I've been praying for this and God hasn't done it. What about those things God has done and you haven't thanked him for? <laughs> what about those things God has given you and you didn't even ask? How many of us re- regard our lives as being blessed? <laughs> see, a, see, a person who says, well, you know, I'm a self-made man is completely different to the person who says, I'm a blessed man. A blessed man, a blessed woman, is a thankful man, a thankful woman. A self-made man has got no one to thank. Blessed. So if you think about it, blessing and thanksgiving almost go hand in hand. And when did Jesus, when it came to the feeding of the 5,000, when did he become thankful? Before or after the blessing? Well, don't answer that too quickly. Just ponder that one. <laughs> so prayer. Now, we see the, the next part of Paul's prayer in verse 3 is this. At the same time. That's interesting. At the same time. Pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am a prisoner. Now, just a couple of interesting points here. Firstly, I think it's one of the the chief goals of spiritual leaders, Christian spiritual leaders, to invoke and, and provoke prayer. To invoke prayer. The end of my weekly email newsletter that goes out to most of you in the church, we've got a list of prayer things there. And obviously some people are reading them because uh, I get some interesting responses from people just about every week where we ask and we invite prayer for people. Here's Paul doing that. So here's the question. If someone came up to you and said, what can I pray for you about today? You ready to give an answer? Another way of asking that is, what prayer needs do you have right now? You ready to give an answer? Think about it. Paul knew what he needed in prayer. And he was inviting the Colossians to... This is how I want you to pray. I want you to pray steadfastly. I want you to pray watchfully. I want you to pray with thanksgiving. And while you're doing that, pray for us as well. 
pray for us as well. So Paul knew what his prayer needs were. And it's, it's very interesting that Paul sees a direct correlation between prayer and preaching. I'm pretty convinced that the times when we as a church have prayed the most, the ministry of this church has been the most effective. And, and, and we kind of tie in what Paul's saying here in verse 3, where he says, and, and that, pray that God will give us an open door for the word. And I don't think he'd be asking for, the, for that kind of prayer today because we've got so many open doors, we don't even know which one to go through. We live in, in Christian Disneyland as far as freedom goes. May God give us the, the intestinal fortitude to go through some of these open doors we've got. So here's the three things that Paul is saying. He, he says, you know, open door to declare what? The mystery of Christ. So the first thing about preaching is that it, you become more informed about Jesus. You learn something about Jesus. I hope you're learning something about Jesus today from Scripture, not just an opinion. It, 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 it's God's word explained about Jesus. That's the first thing. It's the mystery, so it needs explanation, the mystery of Jesus. Now, we can all do this with people. We can share the mystery of Jesus, explain the mystery of Jesus. Secondly, you notice in verse 4, that I may make it clear. That means some preaching can be heard and people are going to go, what? And, you know, Maybe you've heard a preacher go on for an hour or so and at the end of it, you're still not clear what he's actually said. So Paul's saying, for God's sake, pray that we can do this with clarity. Let's be clear here. And I hope that we can be clear in our message too. Please pray for that. Now, I'm going to overlap the next section as well. Let's go into verse 5. Conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders, making the best use of your time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now, you could think, oh, well, okay, we've left the preaching component. I'm going to, I'm going to suggest to you, now, this is Paul saying, when we preach, a couple of things got to happen. We've got to have this coming in to support it, and that's the prayer side of it. But we've also got to have the church living in a way that supports the message. <laughs> Good night. Man, you know, we can be, you know, sometimes I am praying through the week. I'm pleading with God in prayer for souls to be saved. I'm pleading for God to, for the church to be strengthened. And I'm preaching my heart out and someone's chewing gum and texting and there's a visitor watching going, oh, okay, I got it. I, I see what's, because there's another message being preached. And life matters. The way we live matters. The way we respond, the way we give attention. You know, when Ezra read the word, and I saw this in Russia, the moment in, when, I was in, when I opened the word, as soon as I opened the word, everyone just stood up. Because when Ezra read the word, it says, and they kind of based it on this, when he opened the scroll, they all just stood up to give attention to the word of God. And it says they were there all day in the rain, listening to it, outdoor church meeting. Wow. Now, am I saying we should lift the roof off, let it rain, and uh, except this bit here, and uh, <laughs> you should stand to attention to the word? No, but, but let's get the principle here. Let's get the heart of what's happening here. There's a certain gravity to the word of God being taught and preached. So now let's come into the next section and we'll bring this to a close. 
depending on whether you say Tychicus or Tychicus, will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. So here's the first person that's mentioned here. We'll call him Tychicus. He is a bit of a mystery, but here's, here's something we know about him. Paul is saying two things. Firstly, I'm going to send him with a report of what we've been doing. Now, that's interesting. It seems that when someone comes from another place and comes, and we have this you know, occasionally throughout the year, we'll have missionaries come in, and they give a report. Paul's thinking is, this will strengthen the church's faith. So it's a good thing to do this. Secondly, notice how this Tychicus is identified. He's identified as a beloved brother, a faithful minister, which generally means he's handled the word of God well, and he's a faithful minister and a fellow servant of the Lord. Now this is interesting. So let's, let's just leave this guy aside for a moment. But Paul is not putting his trust in someone who's unreliable. That's the point. So let's come down to the next one. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. See, the reporting of what God is doing in other places encourages hearts. Verse 9. And with him, now, now it gets interesting. Onesimus. Who is Onesimus? He's a runaway slave. Now, why is this interesting? Because there was a bloke in this church who's not mentioned in the closing verses of this epistle whose name was Philemon. And Philemon was a master of slaves. Very interesting that Paul closes Colossians 3 talking about masters and slaves. And then he says, and I'm sending Onesimus back to the church. Back to the church? Sending him? What's going on? Yes, he was a runaway slave. He had become a Christian. Chances are Philemon, no, not chances are, Philemon was a Christian. Philemon was a part of the Colossian church. Philemon probably, as a Christian, still treated his slaves like a pagan treated slaves. And Onesimus probably accompanied him to the church, meaning heard the gospel and gave his life to Christ. And Onesimus maybe thought, I'm like him now. I'm free. Christ has freed me. And he decided to take that to the letter of the law and run away. He meets up with Paul and Paul says, okay, let me see if I can fix this for you. So he writes Colossians and he writes Philemon. So if you want to see where Philemon fits in, it fits in about verse 9 of chapter 4, Philemon. And you'll notice that the same three guys who present the epistle to Philemon are these guys, Tychicus, Demas and Aristarchus. So Onesimus, now this is interesting because what we're going to see here is Paul, Paul is going to unpack this theme without even talking about it. And it's the theme of reconciliation. What is reconciliation? Where you take two enemies and bring them together so that they are now bonded in peace. Now, how's he going to do it? Onesimus, Philemon, is, is they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Verse 10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. Now, here we go. Look at the next, look at the next name. Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. What the heck? 
Remember Acts 15, verse 39? It says something like this. And a sharp dispute arose between Barnabas and Saul, or Paul, regarding Mark. Now, what had happened? Remember first missionary journey? Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. It actually wasn't his name. His actual name was Joseph. But they said, we'll call you Barnabas. Barnabas and Paul are off on this missionary venture. And Barnabas says, let's bring my young cousin, Mark. Paul says, okay, you're the boss. Let's go. Off they go. Times get tough. Mark goes, ah, and he runs. And Paul goes, well, don't bother coming back. (laughs) And they come back to Antioch. And Barnabas says, let's go and strengthen the churches that we just planted. And let's take Mark. And Paul goes, you have got to be joking. I'm not going to take Mark. And Barnabas goes, yes, we are. Paul goes, no, we're not. And you know how the story goes. They, they, they never spoke to each other. There's no record of, of that fight from that point on of Paul and Barnabas ever speaking again. Wow, over Mark. So now Barnabas, legend says, has been martyred. Paul can't reconcile with him. So what's happened? He's referring to Mark as a part of his team now. Gee, this is making an interesting movie, making an interesting novel. I wonder what happened. Because we read in Paul's last epistle, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, he not only says Mark is a part of his team, he says he is the most helpful team member. Wow. That's what we call reconciliation. Reconciliation. Now here, this whole section is really Paul talking about partnership, a partnership between the church and him, the partnerships that he forged. And we go down and Jesus, who is called Justice. This is interesting, just a little point here as we wrap this up, that there was somebody in the church. See, Jesus was just a common name, just a common name. And this common name became uncommon because of Jesus Christ. And those, there were at least two people mentioned in the New Testament who were called Jesus, who weren't Jesus Christ. And they both changed their name out of respect. Interesting. Jesus, who was called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers of the kingdom of God. They have been a comfort to me. All right, so there's all the Jews. So this means everyone mentioned from verse 12 on is not a Jew. Epaphras, not a Jew, who is one of you. A servant of Christ Jesus greets you. Now, I can imagine that Epaphras was was a a pastor who was being murmured against. He was a pastor who was being undermined. He was a pastor where these false teachers had come in and put disruption in the church. And his leadership may have been undermined. Look what Paul's doing. Listen to what Paul says to the church about their pastor, Epaphras. Listen, Listen here. He is always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. You want to pray pastoral prayer? That's it, right there. Look what he says Epaphras was doing. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Heriopolis. Wow, what a big rap. And then, that, in fact, that's, if you look at it, that's the biggest rap he gives anyone in this epistle. Right, Epaphras, he's really promoted this guy. 
All right, so we come to verse 14. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Interesting, beloved physician. I was talking with someone before the service and they said, oh, I've got to go and see the doctor this week. Not looking forward to it because he's got no personal skills. Don't you love a doctor like that, especially a doctor with needles? It's worse when they're a dentist and you go there, you get a random dentist and you realise it was the kid you picked on in primary school. Ooh, this could be bad. Anyway, but Luke was the beloved physician. What a nice, what a nice thing. Nice thing. And it goes on. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it read also uh, in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea, which was probably Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesians. And say to Archippus, now this is interesting. This is really interesting. Where the heck did this come from? He throws this in and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Wow, that's interesting. Just throws that in. There's a couple of things I notice here. We're we're nearly there. He knew these people by name. Very impressive. Very impressive. Remember, he'd never been there. But he'd met this guy. See that you fulfill your ministry in the Lord. Wow. Love to know what that meant. Love to know what the story is behind that. We don't know. And here's the closing verse. Now, the closing verse is interesting because Paul doesn't do what many other writers do and he doesn't do what he does in other epistles. And that is conclude with what's commonly called a prayer or a benediction. Bene, good diction words. Good words. He doesn't conclude with a long benediction. Here's his if we're going to call it a benediction, this is what he says. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. So it was common that Paul would dictate his letters, they would be written out for him, and then he would take the, the stylus and he would write the conclusion, you know, put his signature to it. And then he says this, Remember my chains. In other words, don't keep bothering me with all these petty disputes. Your problems are nothing compared to mine. <laughs> Remember my chains. And then this is his closing words. Grace be with you. You see, the Judaizers didn't get grace. The Gnostics didn't get grace. Grace be with you. Let's pray. Father, help us to be a church that takes to heart the message to the Colossians. Help us to be a church that has Jesus in us and and for us to be in Christ. Help us, O oh God, to be the kind of people that live for you and serve you with all our heart. Now, Father, if there be any within the sound of my voice who have never given their life to Christ, I pray for them right now and I pray, O oh God, to you to work in their hearts, to open their eyes, unstop their ears, change their hearts and help them to see their need for a saviour. Lord God, I thank you that you have sent your one and only Son as our one and only offer of salvation. Now, Lord, I pray for everybody who's listening to me right now that they will receive and welcome that offer of salvation and forgiveness. Help us as a church to walk in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Beware of false teaching and get serious about living a Christian life that reflects the heart of Jesus. 
Podcasts and Finding Truth Matters, including tonight's program, Colossians Part 10, are available from Lagana Media. You can contact us at P.O. Box 1143, Lagana, Tasmania 7277, or via the website, findingtruthmatters.org. If you'd like to subscribe to the monthly e-newsletter Perspectives, visit findingtruthmatters.org and click subscribe. Dr Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to having you join us at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.